All right, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This week we are talking about the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 17. These are the words of God. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, not in wisdom of words, so that the cross of Christ will not be made empty. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are. So that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of word or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my word and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, draw us close by your Holy Spirit. As the Scriptures are read and the Word is proclaimed, may the word of faith be on our lips and in our hearts, and let all other words slip away. May there be one voice we hear today, the voice of truth and grace. Through Christ, our great shepherd, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I'd like to begin by reminding you of the contours of Paul's thinking early on in the first epistle to the Corinthians. He has introduced himself with Sosthenes, a dear brother from the church in Corinth, a former synagogue leader who converted. And here at the very beginning, we have the testimony of two or three witnesses. Paul doesn't rely simply on his testimony. He relies on the testimony of two or three witnesses, which is, of course, rooted in God's law. So Paul's goal in writing this letter is to bring apostolic yet legal charges. They're resolved in Christ, no less. But to bring these legal charges against a church that was in need of significant change. They needed correction. So Paul starts the process of binding and loosing. At the very beginning of this chapter, he reminds them that they have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. And because of this objective fact, they are now called saints or holy ones. Being set apart is only part of what it means to be saints, but it's not really the main focus of the word. 
to be a saint. Um, when the Apostle Paul desires for them to know that they are saints, he wants them to know that saints have access to the holy place. That is what a saint really is, is somebody who has access to the holy place. Christ, our forerunner, has gone into the Holy of Holies. In his death, the, the veil was torn in the temple, that veil of separation. Um, and he brought his people into the sanctuary, into the presence of God. So that's ultimately a picture of Adam going back into the garden of, of God's presence. So to be a saint is to be somebody who has access to the sanctuary. And that is something we'll develop later on in the letter when he speaks of the Holy Spirit in the church and the people of God. And so that, that's all echoes of temple, tabernacle, and garden. Moreover, <clears throat> the important component here has to do with eschatology. Um, God had pro provided the Corinthians everything that they needed to be obedient to Christ. We usually think of eschatology in terms of bad things happening later. But eschatology is interwoven into the scriptures. It's interwoven into your life. And Paul emphasizes here at the very beginning, look, Corinthians, Christians, brothers, sisters, saints, you have what you need in Christ, and you have what you need to be obedient to him. They have, in verse 5, been in, enriched in word and knowledge. And as people who have access now to the sanctuary, they have the gifts and the treasures of the temple, all of which points to Jesus, our great Redeemer. Now, <clears throat> the gospel had been confirmed in them, and I mentioned this last week, but the word confirmed he uses twice. It's a legal term. The gospel had been confirmed in them, and it will be confirmed in the day of Christ. I didn't get into this last time. Um, time is always uh, something we, we are dealing with. Um, but I will say that uh, in verse 7, when he says the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that has both an immediate fulfillment and a final consummatory fulfillment. In other words, in AD 70, when the temple was torn down and, and Jerusalem was destroyed, that was an important mark of history. It was something that God had done to show the old heavens and earth, the old age is gone, and with Christ's resurrection, his death and resurrection, and his ascension, don't forget the ascension is a critical part of the gospel, that's the new age, that's the, the age to come that has now come. So <clears throat> think of it like this, Jesus is very much like Jeremiah in his prophetic preaching. The vindication of the prophets, like Jeremiah, is always tied to a great catastrophic event. Uh, Jesus, again, like Jeremiah, was vindicated when the temple was burned and torn asunder. Now, to be sure, the resurrection of Christ vindicates Christ. He had promised to be raised. He, he was, you know, in the belly of the earth like Jonah, and he was going to be raised. The resurrection vindicates that truth, vindicates his preaching, absolutely. But so did AD 70. Because there's this cryptic message where Jesus says the sign that the Son of Man had been enthroned was that the armies of Rome were desolating Jerusalem. That's how we read the Olivet Discourse, and, and that's really uh, revelation with a lot, a lot of color and bluster, shall we say. <clears throat> so God destroyed the wisdom of the wise in destroying the temple. He destroyed the wisdom of the wise, and as we'll see, he vindicates his son in the process. And the Corinthians, Paul says to them that they just simply need to be faithful to the ever-faithful covenant God. 
He's the same covenant God, the same covenant Lord. Your job is to be faithful to him. The work God does in people will be confirmed when they meet the Lord in eternity. When, When you stand before Christ, that work is confirmed in you. So justification is by faith alone, and that legal status that you have now has eschatological ramifications in the end. Now, before we dig into our text, I want to remind you that Paul, he gets right to the problem right away in verses 10 and 11. Chloe's people had let Paul know that there were divisions. That word there is, it means schisms. They were taking place in the body, and that's all stemming from an argument over which leader, which Christian leader was more impressive, uh, more was better. And apparently, baptism was a major debate in Corinth, and they had received baptism, and Paul has to tell them, whose name were you baptized in? It wasn't in Paul. It wasn't in Apollos. It wasn't Peter. It was Jesus the Lord. That's whose name you have in your baptism. So in order to reprove the church, Paul had to get back to the basics. He had to get back to the word of the cross, the central focus, our first love, shall we say. Who was crucified, he says. Who was crucified for you? Whose name is on you in your baptism? And now, what is the power and wisdom of God after all? So let's dig into our text. And I would advise you to, uh, if you have a Bible, stick there, because we're going we're gonna to really dig into it. Um, verses 17 all the way to chapter 2, verse 2 has a chiastic structure. We've talked about that before, meaning that Paul uses a conventional Hebrew writing style, and he does it to emphasize and bolster his argument. Chiastic patterns in, in, again, Western world, we think of beginning, middle, end, and it's just a straight line. But in the Hebrew mind, that's not what you do. You start with a point, we'll call it A, and then you develop that into a further explanation, point B, and then you get to your central point, point C, And then you bring it back and you mirror that same point you made in point B, and then you go all the way back to A again. So it's beginning, middle, beginning. And that's the Hebrew mind. Um, And that's central to biblical theology, too, when we think about the story of the garden all the way to the city, Genesis to Revelation. So you, you always, you're starting, and then you build that argument, you get to your main point, and then you circle back. So A, B, C, C, B, A, that's how we usually mark that, beginning, middle, beginning. And... Paul does that here, and rather than going in order of the text, I'm going to make you jump all over. So hang tight, and just when I say the verse, throw your eyes on that verse, because we're going to bounce around, because I want you to see the, the, this is brilliant writing from the Apostle Paul, and you'll see that come out. All right, in verse 17, <clears throat> Paul sets the tone. He says that I was not sent to baptize, but to gospelize. He was not sent to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel of the crucified Savior. He did baptisms, a few, but he's an apostle. He's building churches, setting up leaders and elders in place. They're the ones who need to carry that work forward. He's moving on to the next town to to continue to establish churches. And he proclaims this not in the wisdom of the word. Otherwise, if you do that, the gospel, the message of the cross, loses its, its power. It's powerless, and we'll get back to that shortly. And so Paul's job was simply to present the fact of Christ's crucifixion. Now jump to verse 23. You'll see the focal point of this particular homily, shall we say. He says, but we preach Christ what? Crucified. 
Now skip to chapter 2, verse 2. Paul emphasizes the point again. He is determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's there again. The preaching of the cross is a crucified Messiah. That's the main point of this homily here. Verse 17, he gets into verse 23, brings it back in chapter 2, verse 2. Cross, 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 crucified Messiah, crucified Messiah, crucified Messiah. That is the message. That is the central point. And the apocalyptic event of the cross is the centerpiece of Christianity. It was, it was God's surprising and shocking and distressing intervention in the world to, to save it and to make it new. While the Corinthians are caught up bickering with their rivalries, which stems from the superficiality of human wisdom and boasting, Paul calls them back to the cross. Come back to the cross. It's not in the Sophia, the, the wisdom of man that conquers the world. No, it's the preaching of the cross. And when the cross is declared, the Spirit does his powerful work. Now, <clears throat> out of this, he develops a theme. When that preaching goes out into the world, you have acceptance of the message and rejection of the message. In verse 18, we find that this word of the cross and again, the word of the cross is the historical fact of the resurrection, or excuse me, the crucifixion. Um, that is foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who have already sealed their own destruction, the way he uses that word indicates that they're already, I'm going to make up a word here, perditionized. They're already consigned to death and destruction. It's folly to those. It's foolishness. Um, a crucified Messiah is moronic. In fact, that word that's used there is where we get the word moron. So it is biblical after all. Uh, it's, it's moronic to people that are dead in the old Adam. Th this idea of a crucified Savior is, is nonsense. And, but he, what's, the, <laughs> what's the opposite of that, though? To those who are being saved, it's power. It's glory. It's joy. In verse 30, the power of God in verse 18 is compared now to the wisdom of God. So Paul deals with power and wisdom. And that's kind of the, the two anchors of his entire argument here. Power and wisdom are two sides of the same gospel coin. A couple more observations here. Verse 19. Notice this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set apart. I will set aside. So Paul reminds them that God has always been in the business of destroying the wisdom of the wise. He's already been in the business. Go back to Isaiah. You'll see the same thing. Now, verse 18 starts with a negative. He talks about folly, foolishness. That's a negative. And Verse 29, if you flip there, he then says that there's another negative here. There is boasting. There's boasting. So two negatives. It's, it's foolishness, which invariably leads to boasting. And immediately after, 
in verse 19 and verse 31, you'll note that there are in your Bible, especially if you have one that emphasizes this, there are biblical quotations. In verse 19, he quotes Isaiah, and in verse 31, he quotes Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. So for Paul, what he's saying here is what God has done in sending Christ is utterly consistent with what he has done in the past with, with and for Israel. Yahweh has always been the covenantally faithful Savior of his people. He has never let them down. He has always been there for them. Now, what else do we see here? Verse 20. Again, moving around here, he asks four rhetorical questions. Where is the wise man? A general, this is a general calling out of anyone and everyone who may be prone to boasting in human wisdom, uh, calling out the intellectual elite, the philosopher kings in the line of especially Greek philosophy. But don't forget, Hebrews had wisdom literature, Solomon being sort of the, the great demonstration of that. But where is the wise man, he asks rhetorically. He says, where is the scribe? What about the Jewish scholars? And they weren't just theological writers who, who copied scripture, though that's part of what their responsibilities were. They were great ambassadors and political leaders. He says, where are they? Then, third question, where is the debater of this age? He's talking about the Greek scholars in the wisdom tradition who do nothing but talk about what's new. Where are these people, he says. And notice that he says here in verse 20, the debater of this age. The wisdom of the world is always going to be trapped in the old age of Adam. To enter into the new age of Christ, one must believe the cross. Paul sees the cross as the starting point, one writer says, for an epistemological revolution, a change of knowledge, a change of understanding. When, when that Sunday morning on the eighth day, the first day of the week, when Christ rose from the dead, that is the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness, who dawned. And Paul anchors this, when Jesus came, where are all these smart people? That's the old age. That's the old age of, of boasting. The new age of Christ is here. So you want wisdom and knowledge, then we go back to Proverbs and we find out what is true wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord and following his Christ. That is true wisdom and knowledge. Jump to verse 26. Paul wants them to consider their calling, God's effectual call of salvation, and he wants them to keep something in mind. They are there are not many wise people according to the flesh. When you consider the array of humanity, he says there's really not that many wise people. And they're not many mighty. The LSB tries to translate this really literally. He literally, he's, literally he means not many mighty. He doesn't even really give you a full sentence. There are not many mighty like the Jewish scribes. There are not many noble like the Greek scholars and the aristocratic nobility. Plato emphasized noble birth. It was a very, very important concept in Greek thinking. Noble birth meant everything. It was a very important thing. But Paul says, yeah, it means nothing. It means nothing. In fact, I, I think Paul was quite familiar with Plato's work anyway, but I think that's indicated here. He says in verse 27 that God chose foolish things like the cross, to shame the wise people. 
And the weak things, like the incarnation, God uses to shame the strong. Verse 28, the low, the despised, the base things God chose, even using the things that are not in order to make powerless the strong things of the world. And the aim is to make it abundantly clear that it is impossible for anyone to boast in the presence of God. He's ruling it out all across the board. The table's cleared. No one may boast. No Corinthian, no Christian today has boasting privileges in themselves. Whether it's the Greeks, or the Jewish intelligentsia, the, none of them can boast, and neither can the Corinthians. All, like Job, must cover their mouths. No boasting allowed. Now, Paul seems to be talking about the events in Bethlehem, that's the humble birth of Christ, and Jerusalem, the events in Jerusalem, the death on the cross. The wisdom and power of these two events unmasks the wisdom and power of the world. The Jews, they find this entire thing in verse 23 to be nothing short of a scandal and a snare. It's a death trap. They ultimately find this whole thing to be unwise. You think that that, you think you can be saved by a dead Messiah? You're out of your mind. The Greeks, they find this entire discussion about a crucified Messiah to be nothing short of foolishness and idiocy, and they find it to be completely powerless. But God, in his wisdom, consigns all to a state of impotency. Everything, even the strongest of strong in the world, is weak. The unbelieving world will always see God's work in Christ as being sheer stupidity. And what do we expect of unbelief? That. The Greeks see Jesus as worthless. Why is Jesus worthless? Well, because he was low-born and he was a nobody. He was born in a manger, for crying out loud. Well, the Jews, they despise Jesus because only cursed criminals are killed on a tree. But Paul sees that God used these forsaken and despised events as being the power of God that makes Rome look weak. And it's the wisdom of God that makes Athens look foolish. It's a reversal. The irony that drips on the pages here is the fact that Paul uses masterful rhetoric and unforgettable poetry in order to say that those things don't ultimately save people. Yes, we should be judicious and shrewd, but God says in verse 21, God uses the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. This is far from being Aristotle and the wisdom of the Greeks. What Paul does here is channel Isaiah in order to upend the true folly of unbelief. God is always in the business of exposing the folly of unbelief. And this message that is preached, says verse 24, is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In fact, Paul makes a very personal statement in verse 30. Christ Jesus became wisdom from God. The wisdom of, that spoke in creation, the wisdom of Proverbs. Uh, Solomon could only echo just a bit, a faint wisdom of the wisdom of Christ. But this wisdom from God, and he says, that is righteousness. Well, what, is, what do we get in, in righteousness? We, get, we are granted by God the status of acceptance and justice. We're, we're 
rightness. We get sanctification through faith and baptism. We receive the Spirit and we're invited into the sanctuary as holy ones. That's sanctification. Sanctification, because it means that as a saint, you get to go into the Holy of Holies. And then we get redemption. Well, that's the rescue from slavery to sin that Jesus provides his people. So he sets us free. And these three gifts that he emphasizes here are deeply Trinitarian in nature. They are the work of God and God's people, all of God for all of God's people. And we rejoice. And we rejoice. So we ask, how shall we then live? <clears throat> in verse 17, Paul says that Christ had sent him. Notice that word there. Uh, Paul says that Christ had sent him to preach the gospel of the, the, the cross, the the word apostle, apostolos, it means sent one. That's just to have that office means you are sent with the authority of God and you go and you're, you're sent. And he emphasizes this. But then you get to chapter 2, verse 1, and Paul says, And when I came to you, brothers, he's sent and then he came. And he came to Corinth proclaiming the witness or the mysterion, the mystery of God. See, God acts in history to send his people, and the people respond by coming or going. This same dynamic is at play with regard to God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in salvation. Verse 24 says that God calls. When God calls, that's his action. But what, what, what do we have to do? We have to believe, and that's our responsibility. We must believe. He calls, we believe. And what we have here is the work of God in and among the world and in and among his people. Truly, God is with us. The preaching of the gospel, the word of the cross, must prevail in the world. And that is Paul's central thesis here. The acceptance and rejection of the message does happen, but it happens on God's terms. He destroys the wisdom of the world, and he makes powerless the power of the world. In fact, this is the incredible testimony of Paul, the great reversal of everything because of the gospel. He reverses everything. Every, that's what the kingdom of God does. It just upends the kingdoms of men. It turns them completely over. I love that visual in, in the book of Acts. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here, and they're going to do the same thing. We better put a stop to it. He destroys the wisdom of the world, and he makes powerless the power of the world. In fact, God's economy messing, this is God's economy messing with man's economy. It's, it's Christ, the second Adam, messing with those in the first Adam, and coming and, and saying, this is utter fooly, folly, this is foolishness. You must turn away from this. So wise is this foolish thing of the cross and so powerful is this weak thing of a baby born in a manger to a virgin woman it's incredible it transcends man's thinking and man's believing remember <clears throat> paul is not an anti-intellectual here he's not saying that you shouldn't study and know things and pursue uh, science which just means knowledge knowledge in the world he's not saying that you shouldn't do those things he's not an anti-intellectual but here he uses polished language to make sure that they know that polished language isn't where the power and the wisdom lie. 
The power and wisdom lie in the weak and foolish things of God, which are actually strong and intelligent things. And if it were possible for God to have any weakness or foolishness in himself, if God could ever have any bit of foolishness in his own nature, it's still wiser than men. And if God, if it were possible for God to have weakness in himself, it's still stronger than men. That's what he says in verse 25. And yet in God's self-revelation, what did he do? Well, he made a spectacle of the entire world by doing the low and weak thing in order to humble man and exalt God's glory. If Paul's aim is to disarm the Corinthian church, and he does want to disarm them, because there, there are problems there. If he, if he wants to disarm them, the weapon that he goes for right out of the gate is their boasting. What is the only thing that can disarm pride? Humility. And what is the most humble thing we could ever conjure up? Well, in our own thinking, not much, but in the thinking of God, the incarnation. That's humility. That is going from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. See, men who are prone to boasting in themselves must be taught that their boasting has no ground. Why are they boasting in themselves or other men? Why, is it, why are they so tempted to exalt the supposed wisdom of others? These are the things Paul's wrestling with. And it's because they're pushing the wrong antithesis here. Paul clears the board and says, enough, let me tell you what is truly powerful and what is truly wise, and it isn't any of us. Rather than calling this message the wisdom of God, it seems bland and boring. Uh, we could have called this message Paul and his crucified Messiah versus the world. That's the antithesis. You see, at the, at the heart of Paul's theology is a crucified Messiah. Not just a Messiah of glory, but a, a crucified Messiah. And sure, there is a litany of stuff that God gives his people as a result of Christ's work. But what we're talking about here is the power of the cross to call and convert sinners and make them holy. To bring them from the world and into the garden sanctuary. To take them from the outer parts of the camp and place them in the holy place. And without the atonement, history would simply be one giant wasteland of sin, would it not? If Christ had not died, what would history be marked by? Sin, ruin, destruction, apostasy. Think the moment before the rain started to come with Noah. Tombstone after tombstone, death would rule and reign over mankind if we do not have a crucified Messiah. But we do have the atonement of Christ, and it is the secret to making dead men become alive. And that's ultimately what's at the heart here. It's not who has the better argument, who has the more wise rhetoric, who, who can take on the philosopher professors and just school them. That's not what it is. We're not dealing with arguments. We're dealing with death and resurrection. We're dealing with dead men who need to be raised to new life. And that's precisely why Paul says to preview, Lord willing, next week in chapter 2, verse 8, he says if the rulers of the age had understood what they were doing, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. If they really knew what was going on, 
You know, <laughs> if they knew that the atonement of Christ, that the beaten and bloodied Savior hanging on the tree, if they knew that that would abolish death and destroy their kingdoms, they wouldn't have done what they did. They would have stopped immediately. What are we doing here? We are turning ourselves over. <laughs> but isn't that the wisdom of God? <laughs> isn't that what God graciously does to sinners, remove their pride and inundate their hearts with the light of God's sovereign grace? As one writer puts it, the gospel is not an esoteric body of religious knowledge. The gospel is not a slickly packaged philosophy. It's not a scheme for living a better life. Instead, it's an announcement about God's apocalyptic intervention in the world for the sake of the world. That is at the heart of the gospel. You see, the world's, the world's grading scale will always be the opposite of God's. The world, will, the world values the powerful, the wise, the athletic, the beautiful, the rich. That's what the world values. And all of it is drenched in human boasting. Furthermore, unbelief will always at every turn define God on man's terms. I like to think of God as fill in the blank. That's what unbelief will do. Pride men always want a manageable God. Proud men always want a manageable God. If, if, if the natural man can't make sense of it, it mustn't be true, right? I can't make sense of a crucified Messiah. It must not be true. But don't forget, the, the cross, when we think about the cross, it was very much an, it was offensive in every way, and we can't miss this. People mocked and ridiculed the cross, believing it to be nothing short of stupidity. And it was incoherent. It didn't fit their categories. You worship a man who was put to death on a tree? Do you, do you know that criminals were put there, the, the worst of the worst? You want, me, you want me to believe that this guy, this criminal who was killed, put on the cross at Pilate's permission, you think that accomplished something? It's ludicrous. The, the cross is a symbol of defeat. Everybody knows that. And that's what they believed. That's what the unbelieving world believed and still believes. The Greeks could never follow a loser like Christ. They wanted a mighty champion. The Jews wanted a purely political kingdom and they could never follow a vanquished man. Well, that's something that Ben Shapiro had said, I think I mentioned this recently, he had said that Jesus was a good man who got killed for his trouble. And that's what unbelief will always think. In their religious and in philosophical conceptualizations, the Jews and the Greeks, they didn't push the correct antithesis because they didn't realize that man's greatest problem was sin. In their mind, man's greatest problem isn't sin. It's primarily a lack of nobility. You just weren't born in the right family. You didn't have the right connections. Um, they thought it was a lack of wisdom or a lack of political power, or a lack of cultural prestige. Even 2,000 years ago, Paul told us, you cannot convert someone, even with polished rhetoric, you can't rationalize the gospel enough to someone. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit. Unbelief isn't conquered with the words of men, it is conquered with the word of the cross. And this is the same problem that we face today. When we preach a crucified Messiah, we're telling the world that their greatest problem is their own sin against the God whose image they bear. That's what we're communicating. 
When we're, we're telling them that though they may fear financial ruin, Christ is infinitely more valuable. And though they fear that they'll never ever be TikTok or Instagram famous, we're telling the world that it is Christ's atonement that matters more. It's God's law that tells us we're made in the image of God. It's God's law that tells us that in our sin we have broken this law and as a result we have defaced this image. It is Christ's atonement that the, the death in which we die with Christ, that is the wisdom and the power of God. And why is that? Well, because we ultimately need his death. We need his death because we deserve death. We need his death because our sins are very real and very deadly. And instead of mocking the cross, we, instead of mocking the cross, we must embrace the cross. Instead of boasting in ourselves, we must boast in the cross. And we must invite others to embrace this crucified Messiah too. The Bible calls us as, as God's people to live within the confines of the crucified and risen Savior. That's where you live. That's where you live. Preaching Christ crucified doesn't mean we ignore the resurrection. Paul deals with that extensively later in chapter 15. And it also doesn't mean that we ignore Christ's current session as King of kings and Lord of lords. But it does mean that man's greatest problem is his sin. Boasting comes from somewhere. And the only solution is the crucified Messiah, the atonement. The, the philosophers, scholars, and orators of today, like then, they, feel, they fail to see what is really going on in the world. You know, they, they speculate about evolution in billions of years. They uh, are just obsessing over the most existential threat in the world, climate change. And they get the wrong thing. They get the wrong thing. They're always going to grasp for the wrong thing. They speculate about our origin. They speculate about meaning and morality and purpose and destiny. Their, wanting, their, their vaunted wisdom is unable to grasp the truth about all of those things, which is why pure gospel preaching matters so much. Friends, we want people to receive Christ. We want them to see Jesus for who he really is. We want them to know him, to worship him. And I tell you, before anyone can ever admire God's wisdom in the cross, the individual must already experience the saving power of it. And that's the mystery here. Before really understanding the word of the cross and all of its implications, one must already be in the grip of its power. Which means we need to remember the folly we preach, the word of the cross, the word of the scandalous death of Jesus, which saves the world. That folly is power. And you do not have to shy away from it. In the crucifixion, Jesus triumphed over the powers of Satan, sin, and death. In the crucifixion, the world's obsession with power and authority is completely undone. In the crucifixion, the world's knowledge is reoriented towards the giver of all wisdom and understanding. And friends, we cannot act as though the crucifixion was just some historical fact that we reflect upon once a year. In the cross is the wisdom, and in the preaching is the power and there is no such thing as wisdom and knowledge apart from Christ. Peter said as much. In him are hidden all the treasures of what? Wisdom and knowledge. 
There is no place on, on earth here where Christ isn't completely and totally Lord and Savior. God, God saves us by the power of the cross, the miraculous working of God to abolish death and, and, and release us from the penalty and slavery of sin. And that, friends, that is the antithesis. This is the real difference between Christianity and the various religions of the day. It may seem foolish, but in reality it is wisdom. And it may seem weak, but in reality it is the strength of God. We don't ever want to wander away from the cross and think that we can move on to bigger and better things. When, when we consider our calling, we, we admit that our only boast is Christ. Do you believe that? Our only boast is Him. So look to Him. What has Christ done for you? <laughs> Never ask, what has Christ done for me lately? What has Christ done for you? He brought you to Himself. He brought you to this, into the sanctuary. He brought you into the throne room of God. He paid for your sin in total. He's credited your account with the righteousness of God. He has cleared you of all wrongdoing. He has taken your lust and your covetousness, your cold and dead heart, and he made it new. And this same Christ who made you new is making all things new, which means that our, our testimony before a watching world must be a boast in the work of our crucified but risen Savior. When, when we tell the old, old story, we are unleashing the power of God on an unsuspecting world. And it's the Spirit of God who neutralizes the heart, making it new so that Christ can be honored in someone else's life. And it truly is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1.16. So if you feel the need to boast, then boast in that. Uh, and we'll end here, but Christian unity, which just lingers all over the pages of this letter, that flows from Christ crucified. When, when you remove the boasting from among us, that's where unity is found. And that's the line that we must hold. Let's pray. We thank you, merciful God and Father, that you have brought us to know you and your Son by your Spirit and Word and have caused your word to be proclaimed to us. Grant that we, having received Christ Jesus the Lord, may live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as we are taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. But since we, through ignorance, un unthankfulness, and discontent, do not always obey you as we should, we implore you, O Lord, remember your great mercy and have compassion on us. Keep us, we implore you, from all hypocrisy and unfaithfulness and frustrate all evil and subtle designs against your word and against your church. O Lord, do not withdraw from us your word and spirit, but grant us a strong faith, patience, and steadfastness in all suffering and adversity. Help and sustain your church and deliver your people from opposition, ridicule, and tyranny. Strengthen those who are weak and burdened with sorrow. Grant us your peace, through Christ Jesus our Lord, who gave us this promise when he said, I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.